0: God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. This is God's word. All right, and uh, I'll simply add to that, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Um, A a couple of quick, just uh, random thoughts and and statements. Let's see. Um, Number one, it dawned on me that if, it, if baptism were about the contract you made, you might be able to baptize yourself. Hmm, but you can't. That's kind of an interesting thought, huh? And then, um, yeah, let's see. Oh, we, we once had a, a person here named Kent. Many of you remember him? He's the last person who read this scripture, but it was in another translation. And when he talked about the birds and the, and the air, he talked about the creeping things that creep on the ground. It was the scariest. I. I didn't even want to preach on it after after he read it. So, Danielle, that was, that was very good. And third, as John, I'm out of town next week, as you might remember. So you're still doing it. All right. There you go. So uh, humanity, that's what we're talking about today. And um, some of you know there there's, um, there's multiple versions of Andy sermons you get. Um, some have... You know, I just march through a Bible scripture and uh, and unpack it. And other ones, you you go, where in the world did all of these sources come from? And today, folks, is probably one of those. So um, we begin in the art gallery. So I've been I've been increasingly drawn to uh, to art exhibits. I was I was fortunate enough to have more than uh, usual in my life this summer. And here's a famous piece that I got to see in Pittsburgh. Some of you may have seen this one. This is a pretty famous piece. Does anybody know the artist just by looking at it? Anybody know? No, you don't. This this is Andy Warhol. Yep. And uh, so Andy Warhol uh, was from Pittsburgh, there's a museum there, it's eight stories and it begins at the top story, you've got drawings actually doodles by his mother and you kind of saw his inspiration and you saw some of his early stuff which is nothing like his later stuff at all. And then you, as you go down throughout the floors you see this progression of, of his work and this is the eighth floor, the bottom floor because this is, this is the end of his life, this is one of the last pieces that he did. And so the other interesting thing is in the middle of this room, um, there is a glass case with letters from his mother. And around this time, she, who was, uh, I think, a Byzantine Catholic, began writing much more like clearly about their faith, about the, their Catholicism. But something we know about um, Andy Warhol is that he was struggling with his faith and his sexuality, and and if those were compatible, um, and if so, how? And so, there's a lot of things when you look at this, and you think it's the end of his life, he's been grappling with who God is through these letters from his mom, and his sexuality, and then you see something like the big C on there, and you you assume something. You assume that's kind of like a, a commodification of of Jesus, like a, a, just a trite way of referring to Jesus, because Andy Warhol brought in a lot of pop culture and made you think about, about what it means, the commodification of things, except almost all students of his believe that that is actually referring to AIDS, something he was deeply afraid of, and he was concerned with his own sexuality if he was gonna get AIDS, and he called it, he called it gay cancer, the big C. And so here he is, he's grappling with his faith. He's grappling with his sexuality. He's grappling with his fear of mortality. And it all comes together. And this is a massive piece, one of his, one of his last pieces of work. Now, there's a, a much less known art gallery I went to in Muskegon, Michigan. And there, were, there was a lot of good stuff, but this piece was there. Anyone know who painted this? No? John George Brown. And you wonder, what's this? what's this about? It's a little more overt, perhaps. Um, it's called color no objection. And it's a, it's a pretty powerful moment. Um, you're, you immediately think the dog has no objection to the color of the child's skin. But when you ponder and you wait and you think about it, you go, is there any chance the child is trying to trust an animal with light-colored skin? As a child, in his experience, what what it might be like, you notice it's not a dog with a lot of fur. What would it be like for someone to let in a creature, an animal with with light-colored skin? And it doesn't answer that question. It encourages you to explore and think. It elicits more questions the more that you stand before it. Uh, Abby and I went to another uh, museum, and I'm not gonna show you this one just because it was It was a little graphic, but there was a a large photo, and at first I was like, nope, wrong, I'm not gonna look at it, because there's a woman in a bikini um, in it, and it's like a lowrider shop. And so it's got a car that's being worked on, and there's a man overseeing it, kind of a large portly auto shop looking guy. And then there's a woman in a bikini welding and she's got the mask over her face and then the sparks are flying, and it doesn't make sense. And you start, you look, and you go, wait, hold on. What, what's, what's that about? It makes you kind of uncomfortable even in the gallery. But my daughter, Abby, was with me and she was kind of like, huh? And so we had a conversation about it and one of the first things I said to her, I said, well, let's look and see who's the artist. And you look and you see that it's a woman. And you go, okay, so a woman took this photo. What might that mean? And you, you look just a little bit more and you learn that she is actually a Colombian mother with an ortho, or, or she had a Colombian mother and an Orthodox Jew who grew up in Syria as a father. And so there's this identity question for herself. And then she is commenting on, to some degree, and again, you're not sure, but the culture of being Latina, but not even 100% and the assumptions and the roles in that culture. And, and all of a sudden it starts to bring up questions about the objectification of women and what it all means. And then finally you realize the woman in the photo is her. She took the agency to have herself photographed that way. Wonder what that means. What is she trying to say? But she has the mask over her face. Um, see when you're confronted with something that is well made you often begin to ask questions about it and the better it's made the deeper the questions and they often lead you to asking the questions that I just engaged with these three pieces of art who made this and what led to it being made why sometimes you might even ask how why, how, who Now all these pieces of art had human subjects. They spoke about what it means to be human. The first reflected on Jesus, a human that Christians believe to be the Son of God, who we, other humans, often trivialize and commodify, but are drawn to, who we struggle with, and try to discern, is there there a continuity between our desires and the desires of Jesus? What does it mean to be a betrayer of Jesus? It was Judas, or it was Thomas, I'm sorry, a denier of Jesus, it was Thomas in that picture or in that artwork by Andy Warhol. What, is it, what does it mean to be confronted with our mortality? What is it, is there redemption? If maybe we've chosen wrong, what does that all mean? The second had to do with skin color and personhood. It deeply elicited those kind of questions. And the last had to do with gender, human agency, with cultural identity um, and the purpose of the body. Is the body to do work, to be seen and acknowledged for its sexuality, to create, to, be, to own, to rule? It brings out all those kind of questions. And truly, when we encounter any human, not just in art, we, we encounter something quite incredible and utterly unique. And every human being we, we encounter should elicit similar questions. Um, the trouble we run into in our current time is we aren't sure if those questions are even valid questions. We aren't sure if anyone made us in our day. I'm not saying you, but but you might be unsure. Um, you might not be sure if there's a reason. And if there isn't a maker, how could there be? How could there be a, a purpose, something, a story that's being told, something that is to be understood? Um, and if there's no purpose, what do we do when we're struggling and we can't muster up enough like purpose and gumption within ourselves, right? Well, this series is on what Christians believe, and we're looking at several key premises and simply Christians believe that, that God created humanity, um, that there's a who and therefore a why behind every human we encounter. That's, that's the premise, So this evening, we'll explore the who, the why, and and a little bit of what difference it makes. But um, before I I get too far into the who, I want to say, that this is a necessary thing to say, by the way, Christians, um, it's complicated, but the Christian believes that the Christian view is not only the Christian view, but it's the view that stands over the entire world. That sounds very, very bold, but it must be said. Because if not, even the Christian can choose if it doesn't stand over the whole world, if it's just a little rule for our community, then, then you can dehumanize someone. You can say, you know, that those people who don't worship God or don't do X, Y, and Z, they're subhuman. This applies as far as Jesus applied it, which was to all people, not even just all, like, he didn't just say, you know, all people generally. He got down to like all subgroups of people all the way down to your enemies, the people within the group that actively oppose you can't stand you and disagree with you entirely. He says you're to love them. The creation text that Danielle read to us said that God said this. He said, "Let us make human beings in our image." And then it goes on to say, "So God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God He created them, male." and female, he created them. And this is of massive um, importance. This statement sits behind the majority of the world's major religions, the Abrahamic religions, which is Christianity, and both Judaism and and Islam. It not only says that God was the creator, but that people bear God's image. So what does it mean to be made in the image of an all-powerful transcendent spirit? Does it mean we look like God? That he has arms and legs and opposable thumbs? There there are a few views out there and they all go further than that meaning. They all go way further than that. Um, One view focuses on this, the substantive similarity that God is a conscious, rational being capable of moral discernment. And so also there is a diversity um, within God. So people are conscious, rational, capable of moral discernment and diverse. So there's that substantive view. And we do see that in the, in the creation text immediately. There's a diversity of people. There are male and female who are different but complementary. And herein lies this doctrine that Peter kind of referred to in his prayer of unity and diversity. There is a diversity by design, which when understood leads to the possibility of deep unity across difference. This will bear out further in scripture and extend into concepts such as the beautiful difference between cultures, but the radical call that people be unified under one God, but not erase their differences. Then there's the relational similarity. This is another view that, um, and you likely noticed that God spoke in the plural. We've already kind of kind of moved into this in the substantive. There's overlap here. Um, God spoke in the plural, and that's not an English misrepresentation, that's the translators attempting to hold on to something in the original text that could feel awkward, but ends up being drawn out across scripture as a theme. And every once in a while, you see it uh, worked out really specifically. So speaking of baptism, Jesus was baptized, right? And he not, not only was he baptized, he did not baptize himself. Isn't that interesting? And a voice comes from heaven and speaks over him and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we've got God as father speaking. We've got Jesus as his son. And then from the heavens swooping down like a bird in flight, it comes the Holy Spirit and lands and remains on Jesus. You see these, this trifecta within God So the relational view is that God is an eternally relational community. So humans are made relational and communal in God's image. And then there's a more functional view of God, which sees God as the ultimate maker, creator, ideator, king, priest, and he's commissioning people to build upon the foundations that he has laid in this world to to be like his co-regents, his representatives out in the world. And he, he's sending them out to, to do the functions that he's done, to create more, to build, to complete, to finish. And, um, and I think, personally, I'm inclined to see all of that going on within the idea of the image of God. Across scripture, you can trace all of these ideas. I would say they, they all trace back to our being made in God's image, um, I kid you not, I was writing this, this little part right here in our store, and an old Dean Martin song came on. It's called, You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You. And I'm like, right, I'm like working on my sermon. I'm like, huh? Like, maybe I should read the lyrics to that one. And um, first of all, how depressing if you don't feel like anybody loves you and you hear that song, right? Like, okay, thanks a lot. Um, but, but at the core, that song is talking about like when somebody sees you, when somebody knows you, when somebody can, can comprehend you, like, what does that mean for who you are? And, and, and in a love relationship, you do feel this way. You feel something through this other person. And what does this mean? Um, why, why bring this up in relationship to God? Because it, maybe Dean Martin's onto something. It ultimately means that if God created humanity in his image, it means that he loves us as he loves himself. Wouldn't that be where the commandment would come from, to love one another as you love yourself? So it means this. It means that someone who is loved loves you. You're somebody. You are somebody. Your enemy is somebody. Uh, The social media troll is somebody. Um, As Dr. Seuss once said, right, a person is a person no matter how small. The, The newly conceived person is somebody. They have been created. Our neighbors who live on the streets, addicts, criminals, are somebody, they were created. The disabled, the elderly, the rich and the famous that get it all, they're somebody. They are are human beings, they bear the image of God, they can be known, seen. How do we know? Because God made them. In the image of God, he created them. God loves those who he has created. He loves us because God is love. And God has always loved one another eternally, uh, and he made us in his image. So we all, in that definition, are are somebody. We matter. So when we stand before a person, any person we ought to consider ourselves like before a piece of creative genius, we, we ought to ask the question, who made her? And then we can begin to wonder, what do they do? What does it mean? Who are they? Again, interestingly, when writing this, um, I was at, at my store, and there's a, there's a dude who uh, walks into the store and gives speeches, um, usually about thir- 15 to 30-minute long ones. And uh, I have a go-to strategy of being very busy on my computer um, sometimes. And I'm writing this about encountering people, and I was like, oh, God, you know. And... Uh, so I tried it. I just fully, like, an, like, I was like, like, the piece of art hanging in the Muskegon Museum talked to me, you know, and we just hung out, and I I laughed. I learned that uh, every chocolate is a chocolate, he informed me, and, um, and we had a long talk about the campfire cowboy spirit, and uh, you know what? I, had, I actually had kind of a good time. I was like, this is this is hilarious the more I think about it. And then at the end, he said, Feliz Navidad! And he took off. Who made him? What if nobody made him? Hmm. It's kind of dark to say, huh? What if he's just the result of random chance? What if we stood back at the art gallery and wondered who created this art and the answer was, that's a stupid question. Would we love it like we do? What if the answer is there is no Andy Warhol, there is no John George Brown? Then what? Christians insist that this is not true. We were made by God and in the image of God. So why? You know when you stand before a piece of art, um, it's not so simple to figure out the why and that's kind of the point. Um, I recently listened to a podcast by Kurt Thompson. He's a Christian um, psychologist and he, uh, he's doing this new kind of sub-series on beauty and art and how it invites us to slow us, it invites us to slow down and return and ponder and he was talking about the impulse we have to rush to the little explanation sheet and how it would be good to actually like wait and just ponder something maybe multiple times before you try to look at the explanation and go through the slow process of kind of like taking in something that's beautifully done. And of course, he moves that into this reflection on relationships. And he's saying, people are similar. Um, our mere appearance doesn't explain us. The way we present ourselves immediately doesn't explain us. Every person is utterly complex by design and by experience, and by the way, we're all in process. We're not finished yet. Um, Every person is a masterpiece in process. Uh, I've become well acquainted with um, a local abstract artist who has shown me her studio a number of times and we bought some of her artwork. I I first stumbled on her studio because I bought something off of Craigslist and she was taking me through the house and I was like, whoa. This what? like She took me through the, the studio portion. I was like, hold on, you're good. And, um, and it was so cool because you see these works that are in process. And she's, she's the type, she'll paint it and walk away from it. for like. A, she has a shed with like 100 paintings. And she'll walk away. And some of them she's like, mm, I don't know, or I'll come back to that later. And then she'll put it back up and she'll, she'll get back to it. And she'll work and kind of see. See what emerges from it. And she is very, um, she's not a big fan of quick interpretation. When you say, what's that? And she won't tell you. Um, I'm quite sure, this is, this is one of her pieces that we've got, that that is some form of landscape, maybe desert. I see mountains in it. So I said, oh, like, where, where's this from? And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, is this like a certain view? And she goes, yeah, I don't know. It's like, Joanne, she still she wouldn't tell me. Um, and she refused to affirm my suspicion. It was indeed a, a landscape. Um, I think she doesn't want the observer to oversimplify and miss the encounter with her pe- She wants you to keep going back and wondering. She wants you to show it to your friends like I'm doing right now, and for one of you to go, uh, no, that's a cat, like, obviously see? She could tell you other things though. She could tell you how she, what, what painting does for her, how she likes her, her art these days to feel open and light as opposed to her older work that was complex and dark, and how that reflected kind of where she was in life and, and how she was feeling at the time. There are details that she reveals, and there's others she invites you to linger and ponder and discover yourself. I think we have a similar dynamic in this creation text. It, it gets right at some of the purposes God has, but it's not exhaustive. You can't, you can't just look at a person and go, ah, made to rule, that's that, you know? Um, there's always more. So, so even as I go through some of this stuff, this, some of these purposes, this is, like, this is like her telling me this is art. She's like, no, it's art, Andy. That's all I'm gonna say. Like you got to ponder it more. You gotta, so we need to know people more. But here are a few things that arise even just from this short text that we read tonight. We were made to reign and govern, to be fruitful and multiply, and to steward and be sustained by the earth. That's just this short little text. I could have gone into Genesis 2 and there was a lot more, and I realized I'd have you here for a day um, if I even just went into that. So immediately after God says, "Let us create them to be like us," um, in a way of kind of explaining that idea, He says they will reign over the fish and the birds and the livestock and wild animals, and the small animals. And again, as God wrote my sermon, um, right as I was writing, this, I was writing this little piece at home, and our two dogs started to fight. So they started, rawr, 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 and uh, and I intervened and I yelled, "Benji, shush!" And then Leo, come here, Leo, come here. And, uh, and, and Benji defends food even when no one's near it. Like, you know, there's three bowls. He's got one. Leo's is over there. Leo comes anywhere in the vicinity, and Benji just goes. Rawr. And Leo's like. Mm. And then he'll kind of like mess with Benji because he's younger and he's a little punk. And Benji just gets all riled up. And he just lost his mind. Like, when I was writing this, he was just like. Rawr. So I separated on Leo. Come here, and Leo kind of sits there and looks at me. And Benji's just pacing in front of his bowl. He's just like, rrr, rrr, rrr. and um, and I thought, yeah, they're they're sweet. We always say how smart they are. We always are like, oh, they're so smart, you know. Like when I say jump, it can, you know. And we love our dogs, um, but you know, we're not the same. Um, I remember Abby came home from school one time and she announced, dad, guess what I learned? We are animals. And I was like, okay. I was like, I mean, I'm I'm familiar enough with like theology and Latin to know that technically that's a fact. But I was like, what do you mean by that? And she says, there's no difference between us and the animals. And I think, I said this, I think it's something to this effect. Well, you should ask Benji how he feels about that. And she's like, I said, no, there's no difference, I ask him. And she's like, Dad, he can't do that. I was like, yeah, that's my problem with what your teacher said. Um, Like, he can't discern the difference between me and him. He can't, I tell him every day to stop growling about his food and he doesn't, he's he's operating out of instinct, right? Uh, Now, there are some similarities. I'm calling him he because he's gendered. Um, He experiences some level of feelings. You can kind of see it in his little eyes. He gets afraid of things. He gets frustrated. But he's driven by instinct. He can't reflect. He can't reason. He can't articulate himself. He isn't a moral being. Um, The the word animal, like I said, isn't wrong. It means to be animated. It means to have breath, the breath of life, which is what Genesis 2 gets into, that God puts the breath of life in the human. And he has that. Um that's what it means to be an animal. that's why the, the if you go read some you know philosopher, they'll call us animals and they're just showing that they're smarter because they want to offend people that don't know that and all that stuff. So this is why doing a little uh, word study, a little etymology matters like um, you should know what an animal is but but there's a difference between the creatures God's talking about and the ones who are called to reign over them and and to reign, what does it mean to reign as defined by being made in the image of God? It means to understand that higher capacity, that higher capability. Um, this, is why, this is why people who seek to oppress, oppress other people often dehumanize the other people. Have you noticed that? Begin to speak of them more just like, a, like an animal or like, like using more like evolutionary language. They're not as developed. And that is evil. It's denying the image. It's, de- it's denying the, dis- the distinction. The people are all called to reign. They're co-regents. They're called to reign at the same level. They're given that same level of authority. In Genesis 2, this has worked out more. Humans are given roles of almost like the scientists, so, so they name the animals. Now, how does that work? Is that what we did at home? I told you our dog, two of our dogs' names, Benji and Leo. I left out Chandler. Michaela would be very offended because um, he was just off doing something else. Um, That's not what it means. Um, To name the animals was to observe what was distinct about them, to take measurements of them, to assess them, and to categorize them. That's the work of science. Um, See, God made them. God made them. We observe them, categorize them. We can come to some of the understanding. And in fact, God left that undone. He's given us that kind of work to do. And that's what science is. Science can't say, it wasn't really meant to say um, why. It's meant to understand and assess and reflect and to say, what is this when I measure it, when I look at it closely, what is it, how does it work? That's what we are called to do actually. Science is an incredible endeavor to image-bearing people. We can discern, comprehend, teach, even oversee with wisdom. Um, ultimately, that this idea even manifests itself. It goes further and further, this idea of reigning to, um, into governing one another. And that word is in, in our scripture, too, to govern. Um, where, and it begins in families it moves to cities and moves to the world, that we're, we have such capability that we can actually reason with each other, assess things, make good laws to keep one another safe. We are capable of this. And we can change. We actually can change. Um, Then it says to be fruitful and multiply. Of course, this this definitely means to have children. Um, And I need to say here, this is a general and a shared call. Um, Not every couple must or will be able to have children. We we know this. But it does mean that as a human community, this is a call we share. We support one another. We walk with one another in that. Um, But I'm intrigued um, by Jesus uh, as he, when he was here on earth and whenever he talked about being fruitful, he, he's drawing from this, he's drawing from this wording when he uses the word fruitful and he doesn't just talk about having children. He talks about way more. Um, he talks about the, the fruit of our lives, And this is referring back to this call to rule over, to be fruitful. Um, Every time he talks about fruitfulness, it's always in regard to what we produce. You know, he said a good tree does what? Bears good fruit. Um, When a tree, like when a plant is tapped into good soil, the harvest it produces is good and evidences the goodness of that soil. Um, His definition is far more broad. It it talks about, yeah, you you should. You could have kids, but we all know you could have kids, and that go terribly wrong. It's not like that fixes the world. He expands this to all of life. He goes far deeper than that. He goes into the very, like, premise of what would make us good parents, to be rooted in good soil, and that's what's going to change everything we do, every idea, every artistic endeavor, every element of your workday, every relationship, the impact you have on your community. It's the fruit of your lives, everything that is born from the human heart or from human um, cooperation. You can tell how good the soil is, how well it's nourished by its fruit, by the results, and humans are made to bring things to life, to bring forth fruit. Um, I mention a lot that the man and woman in Genesis um, are created uh, in a garden, right? Um, or they're placed in a garden. It's clear from Genesis 2 that this, this garden is not the entire earth. And I think, I hear this mixed up in Christian circles a lot. I feel like it needs to be said. Um, it's that there's, there's an earth and there's a garden in it. It, It's pretty clear. And then the vision at the end of scripture is not of people going back to a garden. They don't. Um, a city actually descends from the heavens and settles right into the part of our world that's in the most turmoil right now. Right? Have you ever thought about this? In a place called Jerusalem, which means the city of peace, but it descends, it replaces. And what's so incredible about it um, is it's got a lot of what God has made in it. Um, There's trees and water and things like that. I think there's animals. Just gonna throw that out there for all the animal lovers. I think so. Um, But it's got a lot more. It's got all the things that were born from our work. It's got gates and streets and doors and walls and windows, things that humans dreamed up, problem-solved, tested, developed, and built over millennia, it, it brings them all together. And they, it descends as if it's from God. Have you ever thought about that? That's stuff we made. And then there's this multitude of people in that city in Revelation. It's entirely diverse. Every ethnos, which means every distinct family ever. There's a representative, at least, it's this culmination of the why of Genesis where humans were to go fill the earth and become distinct in their cultural expressions and make incredible things. It's like it all comes together in this city and God brings it down. And God doesn't wipe it all, wipe it all out and send us naked back to a garden. He redeems everything we've made, even the brokenness. Why do I say that? Walls and gates, why did they make them? Why did we make them? We made him to keep people out, made him to protect ourselves from danger. Um, why would there be walls and gates? Well, he doesn't wipe out our history. He doesn't wipe out the story of who we are and how, and how it went. But he redeems it, and it becomes a symbol of safety and security. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. Their enemies can't access them anymore. It, he redeems even the broken parts of, of our stories. He repurposes them and gives them new meaning. What does that mean just to be, um, I guess, a little current for a second? I don't know. There's, you know, there's the conflict in Gaza, right? Um, there's the, the built environment. Thousands of human lives are being bombarded and destroyed. What does it mean that a new city will descend there? Um, it means so many things, so many things. Um, the, the clearest thing it means, the clearest obvious thing is that every single person that is killed it should be absolutely mourned. That, that God has made them all in his image. There is love for every single person. This should not be debated anywhere. I mean, one person, you should be glad they have died. Um, it means more. It means that the walls that were built, the temples where only some were allowed in, the weapons we've built and aimed to destroy that these, these ought to be, be going out of style. These should be being taken out of this world, and one day they will. That, that's what God will do. God looks in judgment on the whole thing. But I also believe that he, as he once sat over Jerusalem and wept, and he didn't, didn't just, by the way, remember, it wasn't just full of Jews. It was full of the Roman Empire then too. And he said, if you only knew what would bring you Peace if only you knew what would bring you peace, if you knew me. Um, Our heart should be shaped by those truths. I I don't have the answers to the geopolitical problem, but I know the Christian heart should be shaped by those truths and by a hope that one day there will be a redeemed city um, and that there will be peace. Um, And under Jesus... There will be Jews and Palestinians in that city uh, singing a new song in their own languages without a temple. There's no temple in that city. You don't need it. Because God is ever-present with each one of us. Um, all will know him and be fully known. And don't you, don't you wish that would happen? Don't you wish it would? That probably means it's true. Sounds right. Right. Humans were made to live in anticipation of that day, to raise up more children to await that day, to work and create and write and paint and govern as if that day were were here already, to begin bearing the fruit of a coming kingdom, to be a taste of a coming kingdom, that people can say, is that what it would be like? Because then I want it. And in so doing, we should give a taste of a reality that people need to hold hope for reconciliation between their deep differences. And finally, people are to steward and be sustained. God gives them every seed-bearing plant and tree uh, for their food. But as we know, it was also for them to develop so people were to learn how to plant and harvest. And over time, we've learned that some of our methods are flawed and God loves and cares for us in his creation. Our call is to know it deeply and steward it well. Um, I've been quite convicted by the essays of Wendell Berry um, who is a believer in the God of creation, and he, he tends to write hard things to kind of prophetically expose our rampant mismanagement of the world we've been given. Um, I read an article recently, it was from 2018, called The Right Kind of Farming, um, and it's in the New York Times. And so you think about, like, if people don't want to hear from Christians. Well, um, sometimes they do, and guess what? In here, he pointed, he's, when asked what's the solution, he said we need to enact um, this kind of morality. He said, look at Psalm 15 and Jesus' teaching on loving your neighbor. That's what he said in the New York Times. That's pretty amazing. And he said, without like, eternal principles like this, we'll never, we'll never solve the problem. Our political left and right will forever create new monsters. That's good. But he didn't just criticize. Uh, Wendell Berry sought to learn and teach uh, others how to do it well. He has a farm that he inherited that sustains his family, um, where he takes the contours of the earth and the type of soil seriously. And now people come to his farm to learn and to be taught. And, and guess what he teaches? He teaches how to farm, but he teaches eternal principles. Um, and he reflects um, on our use of technology and how it can help or hinder. He's not an utter critic. He's saying, what would it look like to live out the way we ought to live and give a taste? Uh, One of my best evangelistic opportunities in the last few years came from the Green Space Project we did out front. And I've told some of you about this, but I got to share with them our our motivation. I talked about John Muir in the... um, Ken Burns' National Parks documentary and how the song This Is My Father's World would always play behind him. And then I just explained the song and said, we believe that every bit of creation is a gift. And so it's our responsibility even in small ways to like steward it well and kind of imagine what it could be like when the world is made a better place. Um, and uh, the, it, it was very well received, in fact, one of, the, uh, one of the participants who, if you just guessed based on their organization, you would not have guessed. They would like it, private messaged me and said, I was really struck by the motivation you guys have found for this project. Uh-huh. But sadly, both Wendell Berry and John Muir were nearly run out of the church for being anti-progress. But as, I, as is often the case, as time looks back and, and as people look back, we look back kindly on their actions because humans were made to be good stewards. It's, it's right. My final question for the evening was, you know, what does it mean for our purpose? And I almost feel like we can already imagine that. Like, I've, I've cast a whole lot of, of, like, concepts out there that I, I hope you can imagine what might this mean for our purpose. Um, I, I almost feel like I need to flip this on its head and just play the skeptic for a second. You know, what if this is just a, a religious crock, um, a, a daydream, like what if, what if this really is just, just religious opium? I'm just trying to inject into you all, make you feel better. Um, what would that mean for our purpose, right? What if Wendell Berry is wrong and actually just autonomous people seeking their own fulfillment is the best way to move forward? Look, um, honest philosophers already know that if that's the case, if there is no creator, Nothing matters. Um, the prolific atheist, Woody Allen, um, somebody asked me recently, who have you quoted the most in the last 10 years? And I, I think it's Woody Allen, which is um, at church. And I, so this was a group of pastors and they were all like, Keller, Piper, you know? I said, Woody Allen. And they were like, I was like, no, I'm serious. I, he, says, he says good stuff. It's dark, but true. Um, he said this, somebody asked him, because he says dark things about, he says we're, we're, we're created for no reason, that you wake up in the morning, there's no reason, and every hundred years or so, um, the toilet just flushes on its own and we all go down with all the rest of the waste and it doesn't matter, it's a, that's the truth. Like he, these are, you can look him up saying this kind of stuff. And then somebody asked him, so how do, you, how do you find your motivation to create movie after movie and do all this work? And he says, well, yeah, you can't live that way, so you just lie to yourself, act like the fairies are real, uh, get it done, and then move on. Huh? So he's saying, I act against my beliefs to go to work and create a great film. That doesn't make sense. And he knows it. He, he knows it. And, and there's even points where he said, I wish I could believe. I wish I could. See, you can't live consistently without a purpose. Um, and you can't have a purpose without a maker. Um, So you either have to tap into a purpose that is real and accessible, or lie to yourself and make one up and fake it. But oh, how that will rip humanity apart, because it will be a God of our own making every time. So, you know, you wanna see how that would go. There's, the list is so long. We could look at the dehumanizing that that happened in the American South and the transatlantic slave trade. Literally, it was a dehumanizing message. These aren't humans. Uh, aren't fully human it's a, and the trickle down effect it's had even into, into the culture of our day. Um, I'm reading Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meeting and I just read the first half where he describes being in the Nazi concentration camps. Same thing, being treated as subhuman. That, that's what might happen, that can happen. It's happened multiple times. Um, we can look at the wars happening around the world right now. Um, there is Israel and Gaza, there's all the other ones that dropped off our feed, and then that one will be replaced on the newsfeed pretty soon, unfortunately. You can look at all the school shootings, you can look at all the racially motivated shootings, and they're in our news cycle approximately seven days and they drop off because there's a new one that pops up that we all look at on our feed and go, oh no, and then we forget because it's like a massive wave coming at us constantly. Um, You can look at how easy it's become to wipe out just thousands of lives, men, women, and children, um, and not, you know, feel what we should feel about every single one. And there's no doubt, by the way, that religion has been used to justify a lot of that. But what could counter the impulse that God, um, you know, told me to do this rather than, no, he didn't. Like, what's a better impulse to say, God told me that and say, well, there is no God. And it, well, doesn't matter. How are you going to stand against these things? We can look at how easily our nation, um, our nation has slipped into disposing of unwanted children by aborting their lives. Do you notice the cold robotic language of that word? It struck me this time, to abort. It's almost like a robot, like, How? We can look at the way Canada justifies the abortion of the elderly who are useless. I just learned about this. Um, And how they incarcerate the Native Americans, they celebrate and claim. I walked into the Vancouver airport, and it was like the celebration of Native Americans. And I realized I didn't see one business owner. I didn't see one leading politician. And then I found out that the criminal justice system was full of mostly Natives. First Nations, as they say. How? Because we dehumanize, even when we act like we don't. I think, I think we have to look at what happens if we don't have purpose. And then you imagine the flip side of all that and you go, the flip side is we live consistent moral lives where we treat people, people with dignity, where we listen longer than we feel like listening, where we, where we say, who are you? Who made you? Right? And, all, and, and then everything you do would just be infused with that truth. And then, if you believe there's a creator, you have the amazing and incredible opportunity to see that not only did this creator create and animate and commission and love humans, but chose to become one. Um, Not only to become one, just to kind of go, how does this feel? It's like test driving a car, you know, like, hey, wow. Tesla's cool, you know. Um, Jesus didn't just do that. He he actually came and embodied one who was oppressed and afflicted um, by the empire. He he was dehumanized. He was he was. You don't you don't strip someone naked and suffocate them on a cross when you think they're equal to you. He's been there, and he rose from the dead. Um, to, to show us a preview of the, of the eternal life that stands before us, of the city of peace. He, why did he, he didn't just raise from the dead and, and leave. He walked around, he, he ate, he spent time with his disciples. He was giving them evidence of what it's gonna be like when there's hope. He bore a physical body that could be encountered and listened to and seen. And touched. That's the way the Apostle John describes it at the beginning of his gospel. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. Who we can go beyond just knowing about? Because he, when he left his disciples, when he, when he raised, um, ascended from this plane of existence, uh, he said, "I'm I'm not leaving you." It's kind of like he he was saying. I'm just. You're just gonna experience my transcendence now. I'm just everywhere. We got to see him in action, and how important we are to him. Um, we are not the center of the gospel. That was that was drilled into my head at one point for good reason. We are not the center of it. But we're also a really big deal in it. Like, he did indeed become a human. He did indeed die in the place of humanity. The lucky dogs, they don't need redemption, they're just going on instinct. And then he invites us. Um, you know, John talked about the, about the crossing of the Red Sea and, and that great deliverance that God gave to the Jewish people. And then Jesus sits down at a table. um, with his friends, in a room that people built, with windows that people built, with food that people cooked, at a table people made. Um, And he took the bread from the table that they used to remember that great deliverance, and he said, he broke it and he said, this is my body, my human body, broken for you. And then he took the the cup, he took the wine from the table and said, this this is the blood of a new promise. I'm making for the forgiveness of many. Oh, how it cost him to forgive people. But he did it. Contemplate the dignity that that gives to humanity, that he did that for us. Contemplate the love that he must have for humanity, that he did that for us. He had relationship. He, he wasn't doing it because he needed friends. He did it because he loved us. And why did he love us? Because he made us. And he made us for a reason. And we have trampled on everything he commanded us to do, but then he gives us mercy, and then he gives us redemption. And he brings down a city full of the things that we've made, even evidence of the stupidity, and says, I have redeemed you. I'm going to pray here in just a moment. We're going to do a few things together. Um, see these up on the up on the screen. We're going to we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Here's how we do it. I always forget that if you're new, you might not realize. Um, during the songs, we're going to people will stand up when they're ready and come forward and take it. And you don't have to do that if you're uh, if you're not ready. If you're not comfortable, that's okay. Um, but we uh, will come forward and receive what Jesus has given to us and. And in receiving it, um, as John had said with with baptism, this is not a, a contract where you come up and go, oh, I swear, I'm gonna follow you now. You come and you receive what Jesus has done for you and you let that transform you. You actually eat and drink of his mercy. And then when you walk away from the table, consider that you're sending, like this is that creational sending out to rule, to govern in his image under his grace, under what he's done. For you. Um, then we're going to sing together. This is a great opportunity to let music carry the doctrine and let it like sink into our souls. Um, then we're going to give. Uh, that giving is always in the back and you can do it on the screen. You could set up regular or, or however. But this is just a radical declaration that everything we have is a gift from our creator um, and that we are called to jointly be on his mission and to put those resources in a pot to use for the proclamation of this good news. Um, And then right before all of that, there will be two minutes of silence, and I'm gonna open all of that now with prayer. So Father, I lift this time to you. Um, We pray that as we come forward and we partake in your body and your blood and we remember uh, who you are, our Creator, what you've done for us, that you've made us in your image and you became one of us, that you know and understand even our deepest pain. Um, may we remember that as we encounter you, Jesus, that you are encountering us, you're looking at us, you love us, you see us, you see our potential, you see our hearts, you see our struggles, you see everything that we bring to the table and you look upon us with with love. In fact, you say what you said to Jesus, "This is my son, this is my daughter, and I'm well pleased with them." And you say that because in Jesus all of our guilt has been washed off. As we as we give to you, God, we pray that you would assure us of your tender care, that you're providing for all of our needs. I ask God that you would provide for all of our needs that you would give us even an abundance so that we could invest more in this coming city, that we would be able to give more time and effort and funding to telling the good news of this coming city. But I pray that you would, would so increase what comes into our bank accounts that we would be able to rest and reflect. But if any of that would distract us or become an idol to us, God, take it away. As we sing to you, I pray that you would inhabit the praises of your people, that that actually we would experience you as we speak to you, as we sing. And as we pray, I pray that you would speak deeply to our hearts, even in the silence. If there's something we need to say to you, give us the boldness to know we come into the presence of a kind and gracious God. We're, We're We're so safe in your presence. Um, But if we just need to, to listen, allow us to lay everything down and just hear your voice or even just hear your heartbeat. So lead us now as we pray.